must stand firm against any and all arbitrary authority that threatens the personal sovereignty of one or all. That which will not bend must break, and that which can be destroyed by truth should never be spared its demise. It is done. Hail Satan. Class is in session. Welcome to Satanic Study Hall, everybody. We are back at it again. What's up, everybody? I said, Hi. what's up, everybody? What's Hi. up, Bill? Oh, okay. I was going to say, what the fuck's going on? We're here. I'm like talking to myself here. What's, what's good? What's good? Um, February weather. It is snowing outside. Yeah, what the hell, Bill? We were supposed to have a school day. <laughs> There's business to be Call done. Call me up. Principal Pan, hit me up. And he's like, where are you? Get your ass in here. My name is Bill. Uh, I am a member of the Satanic Temple and also a member of Love City Satanists here out of Philadelphia. And today I am joined by... Hi, my name is Dennis Morningstar and I am a member of the Satanic Temple. And it's great to be back, guys. It's great to have you back, Denny. I am Veronica the Valedictorian and I am heavily aligned with the seven tenants of the Satanic Temple. And today in class, if you haven't picked it up off of the title of our episode, because I'm pretty sure his name's going to be in there, uh, we are joined by criminal defense attorney, musician, co-host of The Devil's Dispatch on TST TV, and TST advocate, Stu DeHaan. Welcome, Stu. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's fucking awesome to have you in class. Uh, before we dive in, though, and uh, get to know you a little bit and talk a little bit about the legal stuff that's going on in the world of Satanism and TST in particular, Dennis, what is our email address? Oh, of course, it's satanicstudyhall at gmail.com. And how often do we check that email address? Multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> Way too fucking much. So that's the easiest way to get our attention. And if you don't already follow us on social media, we kind of dive in a little deeper later in the episode. But we are on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Twitch and YouTube. Um, and again, yes, our Discord. And I saved the Discord for last because um, we do have a Facebook community that's called the Goat Farm. And that's still alive and kicking. It is at the mercy of eventually getting motherfucking zucked, as I like to say. Um, but it's going to happen, but we do, like I said, we have, uh, we have the discord available and I personally, you know, discord starting to grow on me. I'm happy with it. I'm having a great time. Uh, it's pretty super organized. It's flowing well. Um, and people are flowing in pretty steadily. What's your favorite thing about discord, Dennis? My favorite thing about discord, probably that I can literally chat about any subject I want without an interruption of someone completely changing the subject. Like I can go to one channel and talk music. I can go to another channel and talk weed. I can go to one channel and just have a general conversation. You know, there's the, there's the venting channel, the, the safe space. Like we got all kinds of stuff, you know, the ritual chat. Um, we even have a recovery chat, you know, so anybody who's in the same position as me, you've got a place to go and, uh, you know, seek, seek other, uh, other addicts to, to help with, um, 
you know, shit that's on your mind, uh, you know, whether that be burning desires or anything of the sort. Um, so yeah, we've got all kinds of stuff over at discord. Um, and it's, it's just growing as he said, both with members and as our channels go, um, you know, we're, we're kind of merging some together while expanding others. Um, so that's, yeah, that's what we got on discord. You know, one of my favorite things that's going on right now that I, I haven't fully taken advantage of outside of hijacking that shit <laughs> is, uh, you know, Veronica and Keen's and the goat farms art room. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I've, you know, I've lurked a couple of times, talked to some of the members that have been in there and I was just gonna ask Veronica, can you tell us a little bit about that? And then what's kind of happening in there? Cause it seems to be growing and, uh, some of the art projects coming out of that is, are pretty impressive. Yes, I can talk a little bit about it. Cause it is my favorite thing currently about discord. Uh, I still have yet to get fully acquainted with discord, but so far the art room has been, uh, the best part of it for me. So thank you so much, Dennis, for showing me how to transfer, uh, our little Facebook rooms, art class, art room over to discord. Uh, cause it seems to be, um, uh, you know, like becoming just as effective. Um, so it's just this weekly art room that we start in Discord and it's uh, whoever wants to pop in at their convenience. Uh, we usually do it on Sundays from two to five um, and you don't have to stay that long. You can pop in whenever you want and you, you're not even like required to talk. Just work on something artistic. You can write. Uh, we do have a little bit of like discussion that go on. We can You can show your art projects to, you know, uh, everybody who's in there just to get a critique or some feedback. And it's always just a really nice, chill environment. I think when uh, Kian and me uh, formulated the idea on Zoom, we were kind of, uh, the idea was to go back to uh, coffee houses where you can just sit there and sketch. And in Kian's case, he would sit in the pub, have his drink and, and do his art. Um, and we're kind of missing that in this pandemic climate. So the art room really provides an alternative to, to what we're all missing in this time of isolation. Um, and I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, Sarah is awesome. We're at the point where we're actually like making some crafts and, and art pieces for each other. Um, so I'm really, really happy with with how this is going. It started out as just a really, you know, kind of silly, small idea. And I'm so appreciative of everybody who really got enthusiastic about it. So um, thank you, Dennis, so much for helping me set that up in Discord. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. Thank you, everybody who's been contributing. Thank you, Dennis, for just, you know, making Discord all happen and, you know, taking that whole project on. Uh, we do also have a Patreon uh, that's available at patreon.com slash satanic study hall. If you would like to consider supporting this rotating bench of fucking degenerates, um, they hit you with episodes a couple times a month. Um, now, speaking of that rotating bench, that is who we are. Satanic study hall. We're a podcast. Uh, we talk about Satanism from its inception to modern day. We cover news, entertainment, we do music reviews, book reviews, and as Johnny likes to say, we pretty much talk about anything satanic. If it's in the news, we cover it. Uh, and we try not to completely look through just the lens of, you know, a member of the satanic temple. And as Principal Pan reminds you in every episode, uh, we're not affiliated with a satanic temple. Uh, we don't speak for anybody else but ourselves. We don't represent anybody else other but ourselves. I think also in regards to that, it is important to gain perspective and learn about things that might not be so, you know, friendly to your, you know, your interests and look at the other side and look at other perspectives. That's, that's the only way to, you know, I think to grow and move your intellect on from what it currently is, you know, there's really no time in this world to, to allow you to get, to be lazy because then you become vulnerable to bullshit and we'll get more into that later on. So a couple more things to talk about, um, the Stephen Bradford long normie Satanism episode. 
that was pretty fucking good. And I want to shout out Father Al for that entire normie Satanism journey with part one, talking to Stu's friend um, and confidant, uh, Mason Hargett, uh, gave us a real good. And, you know, with all of our listeners, everybody, you know, he was the first one everybody went to as a from a normie Satanist perspective. It was the bow tie thing. Just, you know, he definitely resonated with a, a great deal of people within the community, whether they were a normie Satanist or not. And we're going to talk a little bit more about Hail Satan as we get to know Stu. Uh, but definitely, I wanted to thank Stephen for joining us for that episode. All right. So, uh, all right, Stu, spotlight is on you. It's time to get to know you a little bit. Um, I'm sure uh, our listeners, maybe they're not, maybe they're not familiar with who you are. Um, so we're going to kind of go back in time a little bit and kind of progress to who you are today. But um, can you kind of take us back to your childhood and let us know, you know, what life was like growing up, um, whether, you know, you're comfortable talking about family structure, religion, uh, any crazy ass traumatic events that shaped you things that kind of helped mold you into who you are today. Yeah, sure. So uh, I was a military kid, a uh, military brat, as they say. So um, we moved around a lot. My dad was a Dutch immigrant. And then I ended up going to high school and middle school and some of elementary school in the Netherlands. Uh, I went to a NATO school, so I was with all Canadians. And uh, I moved to Arizona when I was 18, uh, just because I got uh, in-state tuition, because that's where my dad trained as a, when he was getting his green card. <laughs> so that's how I ended up here. Um, so I ended up at University of Arizona in Tucson, where I got a degree in political science. And then I went to Gonzaga Catholic Law School. Uh, okay. <laughs> as far as religious background, my, my dad was, he calls himself a Catholic. Uh, he's an atheist. My mother um, comes from a Jewish family, but was raised Lutheran. And now she's Buddhist. We have kind of a pluralistic family. So, uh, you know, being religiously different wasn't a thing in my family. Now, did you have any, did you have a personal relationship with God growing up or at any point in your childhood or? Well, no, I, I kind of had experience when I was about, here, oh, here's my, here's my experience when I was nine. Um, it was in Baptist, Georgia, Fort Benning. Uh, I wasn't allowed to play with the other kids because I was the unchurched child. And that pretty much solidified that for me. Um, but, you know, I, I just never uh, attended church or anything like that after about that age. So. <laughs> From being neutral to gearing towards now, was there a progression into atheism and then Satanism or was there kind of just indifference and, um, you know, just an evolution of personal beliefs and then Satanism kind of came and Yeah. How did we get from a uh, Catholic law school to <laughs> Satanism? <laughs> oh, well, that was that was a long time coming. So, I mean, I guess the best way to put it was agnostic. Um, for most of my upbringing, I was always in the metal and stuff. So like the imagery and in my introduction to church of Satan and all that stuff was a lot younger, but I didn't really, uh, latch onto it at that point, um, or identify as a Satanist or anything like that. Um, and again, I would say I was kind of getting into the territory of like kind of a firebrand atheist in a way, um, because of, you know, the religious right and the shit that happened to me when I was Baptist country, um, and, you know, as we've all seen, whenever you see a religious liberty law, religious freedom, liberty, whatever they want to call it, law passed, it means someone's about to lose their rights. And that always pissed me off. So after law school, I went into criminal defense, um, but I, I didn't get into the satanic temple stuff to like 10 years later. But um, as far as becoming or my introduction with the satanic temple and starting to identify as a Satanist was early on um, in, in TST. 
when there were like maybe two chapters, it was like Seattle and LA and um, uh, St. Louis, you know, it was like a handful of chapters at the time. And uh, I saw the Baphomet drawing that Lucian did for Oklahoma. It wasn't even a monument yet. It was just a drawing. And uh, so it was around that point that started openly identifying, you know, after lots of research and and all this stuff. um, That's when I started openly identifying as a Satanist was actually with TST, but it was like really early on in TST. Um, And then I did since then, um, you know, since before that, I'd known a bit about the Satanic Bible and all that stuff, but I really got uh, more learned in it at that point, I'd say. And that was all before I had any idea that I would get this involved. (laughs) (laughs) Now, after you did start becoming that involved um, and even coming from like a a pluralist family, um, as you put it, did they have any reaction to you formally coming out as a Satanist or starting to identify publicly as a Satanist? My family, um, it was like, of, of course you fucking did. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think at this point, I mean, it was par for the course. You know, they, they saw me through my anarchist days and my socialist revolutionary days. And they saw me doing, doing this kind of activism and that kind of activism. Um, and then I got out of that completely. But, you know, it was kind of a steady path towards this. Um, and actually what got me into Satanism, I should probably add, this is important, um, I say a lot of people, you know, they come from the romantic literature, you know, a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. We're into the paradise lost route or whatever, you know, the, the satanic school as they call it. Um, and then a lot of people came from the occult route. So, you know, you've got your church of Satan converts uh, or what have you, or people that were just generally in the occult. Um, my, my path was actually um, for political science. Uh, I studied a lot about Mikhail Bakunin and some of the old Russian uh, anarchists who identified as Satanists kind of in the same way TST does. And it was, it was kind of this counter myth uh, socially and politically in, in Russia during the Russian revolution, where that was their method of fighting the Orthodox church. It scared the shit out of them. So they all identified as Satanists and kind of owned that label is That's my understanding. So really that interesting. was kind of how I went in this path um, from when I was much younger. That's super interesting. Wow. Okay. I need to, I need to look into like as big as a Russian revolution, um, you know, enthusiast as I am, um, I need to look into that aspect of it. I know, you know, the generic information about taking on the orthodoxy in the middle of the revolution, but I didn't know that there was like a whole, um, you know, a school of intellectuals that identified specifically as Satanists to take them on. That's, that's incredible. Um, Mikhail Bakunin, there's a, there's a book, it's a short book. It's kind of disjointed. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's called God in the state. Um, that really had the first quotes that I saw, uh, in my much younger times. Uh, and then there's a book called the sorceries and scandals of Satan that I think heavily overlooked, uh, in the satanic milieu. And that was another kind of socialist, uh, slant to it, where the Satan was, was the, the force that kind of fought the government. Um, during like the Robert Barron days and all that stuff. So I do think that's that those type of books are important in the satanic milieu, but they're, I don't think they're as uh, talked about as the occult uh, stuff. Perfect. Time for some more book reviews. Thank you for doing my job for me, Stu. Oh, this is great. <laughs> 
Okay, so um, you know, you talked about you know being around, and you know, you've 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 worn a good deal of hats uh, in regards to you know your work with the temple uh, and involvement. So, um, just based on some of our research, now we know you're involved, you know, from a legal aspect and whatnot. Um, now, what are some of, you know, if you could, like, what are some of the many hats that you have worn? We're familiar with chapter head, lawyer. Um, can you tell us about you know other things that you've been involved with and any other like formal titles you might have had? Yeah, sure. So um, we did the, what happened was, so what happened was um, there was a forum where that Lucian was on when he, in his Facebook days, which were short lived um, <laughs> at this point. Uh, but he said, he just wrote in one of the forums, like the original official TST forum, which there've been several on Facebook, but he wrote, is there anyone in Arizona uh, willing to do something? And I, I was a newer member at the time. And I was like, sure, what you got? And he's like, they do these invocations at Phoenix. Would you be willing to give this a shot? So Michelle Short and I on that thread, and it was just so funny because we had like hundreds of friends in common at the time, but we had never met. Like, I, I didn't know who she was. And um, and we got together and decided we were going to do this, what we started calling the invocation campaign, which there was a guy in Florida that did, had done it at the time. Um, and I think there was a guy in Colorado who had done it, or that might've been after we did. But in Arizona, it became an entire thing. So, you know, as you probably know, they showed a little clip of it um, in the in the Hail Satan documentary. But this was a whole that was a six hour meeting that they had. So this got international attention, which was shocking to us. We didn't think we thought maybe statewide news. We didn't realize what a big deal that would be. But it was after this uh, heavy media campaign. And, you know, the Lucian Bear didn't really know us. We were like the two endos from Arizona at the time. But we had been starting a chapter and we had people that were interested and all this was happening when we were putting it together. Um, but we, we wanted to get involved. I mean, it was a legit thing. Like we really wanted to give the invitation. We didn't want it to blow up like this. We really didn't. Um, and, you know, that that case is still litigation. But this is, all, you know, the whole history of this thing is pretty well known at this point. But it was at that point that we became chapter heads. Um, there was no formal process at the time. National Council was brand new because of the legal, my legal uh, background ended up in my connection with other people um, like Lucian, some of the chapter heads. Cause again, we were very small. I mean, there were like 20, there were like a handful of us at the time. And uh, I eventually got a national council uh, after a year of being chapter head. So I was a national council for a while. And then I had to leave that because at this point we were in litigation, both Arkansas and in Arizona. That's how that went down. <laughs> now, how fast did that all happen? I mean, it, it seems like it almost seems like a domino effect type situation where, you know, one interaction, one conversation, uh, one experience kind of, you know, accelerated another. Um, but from, you know, just the whole the Facebook forum, like you had mentioned to, you know, the initial introduction, Lucian comes to Arizona, um, chapter head, chapter status happened. Like, what was that time frame like? Um, and that was like three years though. I mean, the between when we, when we did the invocation and had chapter status, there, that wasn't exact. I can't even say when the, when the time period was cause the, the corporate structure wasn't figured out then and, and all that. I, I did chapter about a year for national council. And then I was a national council for a few years, two or three years. I don't even know. <laughs> cause that was over. Some of the stuff was overlapping, but yeah, once I got the, the litigation going, I, I had to pull out of all that stuff. Cause it was just too time consuming. 
No, I could, I could fucking imagine <laughs> just having a podcast about Satanism and the Satanic Temple and, <laughs> and then add all that shit. Like I've, I've been seeing, you know, some of the workings. I was the firm too. I have my own law firm and then I had the. <laughs> I was just going to say layer, layer, you know, your obligations as a, as an attorney on top of all of that outside of temple related stuff. And it's a recipe for uh, not a lot of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> With your involvement and your affiliation and all your experience um, and just, you know, all the passion that you've put into, you know, the temple, the tenants and, you know, what is special to you about the Satanic Temple and the Satanic Temple's advocacy? And what about this community is worth fighting for? What I like is how it has this broad kind of compass. So I kind of, in my mind of it as like there's an activism component there a, um, there's a, an arts and culture component. There's the uh, literature component. And, and to me, that's all of these things together, and especially the community, is what makes it a religion. So, you know, I've always, I've always said that this was kind of the religious structure, even though it's non-theistic, so you don't have like the, the typical monotheistic religion in, in, that you do in, in most of the United States. Um, it still has all of those features as, as one thing, even though it came from very small roots it still always had all of those components. I think this alternative to mainstream religion is not only important, but it's necessary. Um, and you'll see in this country where, where there is a heavy religious privilege towards, you know, the Abrahamic religion, especially uh, Judeo-Christian, whatever you think of that term, you know, that is what religion is. When people say you're religious, they think you're one of those religions, period. That's what religious means. And I think that this has left out a lot of people. And then on top of that, it's left out the entire non-believer community. But in my opinion, religion is part of the human experience. From every corner of the world, ever humanity started, there's been religion and there still has never stopped. It's been contiguous and they all built on each other at time. And to me, this is an evolution of, of something that's always existed that I think no one's really done before. Even other satanic religions hasn't done TST has done. And to me, that it, there's that is worth fighting for. Very well said. Um, and and that's you know that seems to be you know a reoccurring theme in a lot of the conversations that we have um, when we ask you know members of the community, regardless of their involvement, um, you know that same question. And it's 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 it goes beyond standout value. It's 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 motivation and drive. So all right, we're going to press pause on the getting to know Stu. And uh, at this point, I think it's a perfect opportunity to take a quick bathroom break and then come back and dive into yet another book discussion with our valedictorian, Veronica. And what book are we going over this week, Veronica? We are doing The Devil All the Time by Donald Ray Pollock. And Belial needs to take a piss as well. Um, yeah, and, go let him out in the snow. <laughs> yeah, there's fucking like, what, four inches out there now? Um, <laughs> all right, we'll be right back. everybody what can i say i sure am glad you came my way let me take a minute or two and i'll introduce a book to you let's go <laughs> let's go reading is fun for everyone hail satan hail satan indeed, indeed. study hall or today uh you know satanic law school but study, <laughs> <laughs> study hall um uh, we are doing the devil all the time by donald ray pollock i'm so excited i've wanted to talk about this book for months um and and this seemed like a good opportunity to finally do it 
Um, so yes, The Devil All the Time was written by Donald Ray Pollock in 20, uh, 2011. 2011. And of course, nobody knows about it until now, which is 2021, because a movie came out recently. <laughs> and everybody watched the movie. So then the book um, sold a lot better than I think it was doing before the movie came out. But the film adaption directed by Antonio Campos was released on Netflix uh, in September of 2020, with much praise for the casting. I think the movie itself had some mixed reviews. Um, but I'll get I'll get into it a little bit. This is a book review. It's going to be more about the book than it is about the film. But I did see the film before I picked up the book, so I have to at least talk about that a little. That's right. It's got Spider Man in it. Damn it. Damn it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely get to that. So uh, I was in my my little house one night with my couple of my friends, and uh, we were looking for something to watch. And they said, "Oh, like you know, this the devil all the time came up on Netflix." They said, "Let's watch that." I said, "No." They said, why not? I was like, because I'm looking at the trailer right now and it looks like a, you know, big actor name uh, smorgasbord. And and it just seemed like a money grab just for the big name actors. I was looking at it. I was like, oh, well, well, he's in a remake I hate. He's in a remake I hate. She's in a remake I hate. He's in a remake I actively, you know, tried not to see. And that's Robert Pattinson. I don't want to watch this movie. I'm glad you're not having to review movies. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we... Uh, so we ended up watching it regardless, and I was really, really impressed by everybody in it. I was impressed with the uh, uh, the filmography, um, just the way it was shot, the script. Uh, Donald Ray Pollock, the author himself, actually did the narration for the movie, and it just gave it a really authentic uh, feeling. So I do recommend the movie adaption uh, for anybody who wants to check that out as well. Um, but then, after the movie, I picked up the book. So in Pollock's debut novel, we're dropped into post World War II Appalachia, where the adverse lives of haunted characters unveil and their misfortunes converge under hideous circumstances. We meet the loud Reverend Roy Lafferty, a talented faith healer with a knack for spider charming. Carl Henderson and his wife Sandy, a murderous couple with an affinity for hitchhikers and depraved photography. Sheriff Lee Bodecker, a lawman who takes his investments in re-elections and side hustles rather seriously. The handsome Reverend Teagarden, a novice evangelist with plans for the youngest females among his loyal congregation. And finally, Arvin Russell, a kind but tragedy-plagued boy with a family who fights the devil all the time. These are their stories. Dun-dun. Dun-dun. <laughs> <laughs> you did it before I could. <laughs> uh, yeah, so to summarize, this is uh, just a book. It's kind of a portraiture of, about several kind of fucked up characters living in um, this area between Southern Ohio and West Virginia. Um, and and we get into it a little bit. Um, so what stands out off the bat, the setting, um, it's Appalachian Gothic. It, it's classified as that. And therefore, it's naturally creepy, woodsy, hazardous. Um, and it's, it's a bleak environment where all kinds of isolated horror occurs unseen. Um, Pollock is actually a native of Southern Ohio, uh, Ohio himself. Um, and he's well researched in the area and the time period. So his expertise around it kind of just fills up the story and just completely buries the reader uh, in the location. The next thing is the feast of degenerate psyches, as I call it, not the good type of degenerates like us. You know, if you pick up this book, you're walking into some twisted minds and you better make yourself right at home because you're not going anywhere. There's so much uh, really complex and dark and evil characters that I could get into, but I just pick two for the sake of the review one is carl henderson spoiler alert there's a serial killer in this and you know he has an accomplice and they're weird 
I'm not going to lie to you. Their method of serial killing is weird. It kind of edges, in my opinion. Um, it, it edges believability as far as uh, serial killers go. It, it's gruesome. It's weird. Like I said in the in the beginning, they have an affinity for hitchhikers and uh, photography. And, you know, I'll leave it at that. Can you give us an example of a gruesome fucking death? In the in the book? Yeah. Um. Yeah. Every every murder Carl commits is <laughs> is insanely gruesome. Um. All right. Okay. Fine. If you want a spoiler, he you know they they lure hitchhikers, him and his wife, uh, into really rural areas of Appalachia, but they also travel the country. He he makes them copulate with his wife uh, before torturing what they call they're, they're the victims, but they torture the models as him and his wife calls them and he does he does everything pollock leaves stuff up to the imagination as well you know there's a lot of torture that goes on while him and his wife are are taking these pictures and then you know he'll eventually murder the poor bastard um okay so i'm still uh, glad i asked i I just wanted an idea (laughs) that's not one example you know you'll get you'll get quite a few of those in this book um, Carl, though, he's also a vulnerable narcissist, which is a little bit different uh, in terms of reading about serial killers. And the, his dynamic with his wife, who's who's also his uh, serial killer accomplice, is is different, too. He, he loves his wife, and his wife loves him, and of course it's a toxic relationship where they're doing horrible things, but they don't live in complete fear of one another, whereas... You know, if someone was that depraved and, and sick and violent, you, you if I were living in their household, I'd be in constant fear of, of my life. Um, and there is a little bit of that that goes on, but there is still an element of respect between them that I found a little bit confusing. And that is why I said it, it, pivot, it pivots this line of uh, believability. And uh, just in my opinion, uh, Carl is portrayed by Jason Clark in the film, who is a great actor. I think actually his portrayal in the film is a little bit more believable because you don't spend as much time in his head uh, as you do in the book. And Jason J- Jason Clark's performance is just it's a little bit more overconfident than the character is supposed to be. So he's in more control when he's committing these murders. And um, it, it actually makes for some really scary parts of the film um, if you don't end up wanting to read the book. I I think, you know, if you're somebody who's into just terror and psychological thriller, I think that will impress you. Um, And uh, the next dark psyche is Reverend uh, Preston T. Garden, who is prayed, uh, who is, sorry, three, two, one. The next depraved character in it uh, that I picked out is Reverend Preston T. Garden, who is played by Rob Pattinson in the film. Um, he is a youthful, handsome new minister ushered in through nepotism. Um, he uses hysteric sermons and expansive knowledge of the gospel as a weapon of power, which sounds like a stereotype, like har har bad preacher does bad things, har har. Like this goes a little bit deeper than that, though, in my opinion. And, you know, how many examples can we pull up of, of preachers using their their power to manipulate, uh, to sexually manipulate people in their congregation? Uh, the same thing's going on with this guy, only it gets a little bit more up in your face in terms of his psychological cruelty with the young female parishioners in his congregation. Uh, there's just sexual mip- manipulation, but there's also other kinds that go on as well. And it, it might make you sick. It made me sick, but it was still an interesting character in my opinion it was still kind of cool to be in his head and see what makes him tick and and see like 
does he have an end game? What's his end game? How does he think he's not going to like, how does he think he's going to get away with this uh, in such a small town and such a small congregation? So that does get, uh, you know, a little bit more in depth in uh, the book. I would say just like Jason Clark, though, uh, Rob Pattinson's performance is just kind of flat out scary surface level. He did a really good job. Something about his performance just it impressed me. It was a little bit over the top. His West Virginia accent, though, uh, I, I thought it was pretty good. He has these weird high in, inflections and and notes um, that he hits, and it's you know it, it's creepy. And he's good looking and he's charming. But I think just to bring up Twilight, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna give you a pass on something. That something for kidding. my generation. Once in a while, oh my god, oh, you have to deal with something uh, in okay. my age group for that once. That is true. I'll I, give you that one. I have the control. Um, but no, I will keep it short. Just on the opposite of Twilight, I think it became very like, real quick. He better not fuck up Batman for me. Just saying. I hope not either. Okay, we, we agree on that point. No. <laughs> perfectly yeah perfectly valid opinion bill in my yeah. Yeah, that's all i got um, <laughs> so on the flip side of twilight i think after the movie came out people to uh, end the book not just the movie uh the book but people started to realize like you know this is only acceptable to the mass public because he's handsome and charming um you know but other than that his creepy behavior would not be acceptable on on any term um and this movie and book flips that it shows, you know, this is a really handsome and charismatic individual, but it vamps up the creepiness so much that I, you being a reader and a viewer, you're not even comfortable anymore um, with the fact that he's handsome and charming. And uh, just outside of that, it's a it's a generally very terrifying performance. I mean, I was scared for, for every character, but mainly every young woman um, he came in contact with, not only in the book, but in the film. Um, so the bonus to these degenerate psyches that, you know, you'll, you'll experience in the book is, uh, suffering. I'm not going to lie to you. I, in the middle of this book, I had to put it down. It's not a feel good book. It, it'll make you sad and, and feel heavy. Uh, there's one particularly really bad sexual assault, or at least a flashback to one that happens in the middle of the book that just after it was done, I was like, how much more suffering can go on in this book before I just can't read it anymore right um but you know you pick it back up and you realize this is just raw writing about what has gone on uh you know in that time period that the author has so much experience with and to a degree i'm very happy that you know all of this uh suffering is portrayed as as uh rawly as it is instead of um you know covering it up or not leading it in there it fits the style of what the appalachian gothic is supposed to be but just a fair warning for anybody you know if you want to feel good book this is not it <laughs> um Thanks. next is the cross uh, the crossing path storyline done right uh you know you'll you'll sometimes well not sometimes you'll get a lot of books where there's a lot of characters it's from a lot of points of view and their their paths will diverge i think a you know, good example and a modern example is Game of Thrones, uh, not just the show, but also the books. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of done as an automated template for, for you know, oh, I'm an author. I have a lot of characters. I have a storyline. I want these to converge appropriately. Um, and it's kind of done like that. And then other, you know, you'll see rom-coms or you'll read romantic literature where 
it's done in a really corny, cheesy way. And any incest in the devil all the time, or uh, yes, it's oh, Appalachia. What do you want me to say? <laughs> <laughs> you said Game of Thrones. I had to ask there. Yeah, of you know, course, of course, the whole fucking Lannister bloodline. Uh, of course, just a little bit, just a little. Um, <laughs> uh, but so this uh, crossing path, this crossing path storyline, because all of the characters I've mentioned just far in the first summary and and the two characters I just gave an examples of, uh, I just gave an example of. Uh, their their paths cross at at some point, and in my opinion, this is that type of story done right. Uh, nothing really seems forced when any of the characters end up crossing paths. Usually, a lot of time, like decades and suffering, and just their own individual storylines have gone by um, by the time they meet each other and interact in each other's stories. Uh, so I just think that was done really well. I think it's a really easy thing to fuck up. And I, I was really impressed with um, the way he fit this all together. Um, this is just for me, but pride in self-defense. Uh, you know, I'm personally finding in this world we live in now that there is a little bit of a gradual move toward being ashamed of being able to defend yourself in your own home. Um, you know, taking arms away from women so that they will not be able to defend themselves against people who are, uh, you know, physically bigger and and stronger than them. It's something that means a lot to me just since I'm so uh, on my own. But this story has a very stark kind of stance in, no, if you're being picked on, if you're being ganged up on, you know, you need to learn how to defend yourself and you need to do it proudly. And, you know, if someone weaker in, in your family or your friend group is being singled out um, for, you know, their weak attributes or because somebody sees them as weak, you know, you need to defend them, too. Um, the broad interpretation and the elicitation of sympathy uh, is also really big. The story presents humanity and, you know, just the human struggle, uh, even if it isn't pretty. Uh, when you're finished reading, you could very well interpret the meaning as like everybody is horrible and the pains of living never end. But I thought it was a lot more than that. Um, the biggest quote I think that comes out of the book is very, very early on. And I think he was very smart to open it with this. Um, but the quote is, uh, it seemed to his son that his father was fighting the devil all the time. What he is talking about within context is the father figure, Willard, who you meet pretty early in the book. He's just returning from World War II. Um, in World War II, I'm not going to tell you exactly what he sees. You know, uh, Willard is a soldier and he sees something in Asia uh, during World War II that is just, it's so horrible that it you, you can feel in this character, it, you have empathy for him. You know, you think about somebody after seeing that, coming back, having to deal with that, you know, how could you not think that some devil or, or evil entity exists um and so you know this this soldier psyche is so fucked up after returning from war that he convinces himself that he has to fight what he's manifested in his own mind as the devil um and he has to fight it all the time or else things like that are going to keep happening to him and they might eventually come for the people he he loves um so it's I, fucking deep yeah yeah <laughs> I, exactly um I, it's you know the biggest reason why i thought this was um, so good. It, it's not to say like, oh, you know, ooh, everybody's horrible and uh, suffering and just people who believe in the devil and God as intensely as they do are just really ignorant or it's just tradition. Like, no, some people experience trauma that you'll never be able to understand. And it can, in my opinion, and, you know, as this book uh, 
really, uh, you know, it, it illustrates. Um, it can destroy any reasonable mind. Uh, so I'm really happy he started off uh, so horrible and so strong <laughs> in the beginning of the book with that. Uh, the movie adaption does that as well. You'll see the death I'm talking about at the very beginning of the movie. It's something that's probably going to sit with me for the rest of my life um, because of how grave it is. So the relevance to Satanism. This is the, the last part. Um, and the biggest one is the devil, or at least the meaning of the devil, what the characters interpret as uh, interpret as the, the meaning of the devil um and a lot of them this is like a backwoodsy place with a lot of fanatical christian religions so they see it as something uh they see the devil as something you know to blame to fear and to create uh they use it to create um reactionary evil themselves even though they don't always know that they're doing it as you read through the story you know it becomes apparent that they're while they're fighting an invisible enemy uh, the devil is the evil in individuals or in the most painful and gruesome realities of life, uh, like disease, poverty, and broken dreams. Something that you, not only just evil individuals who can control their own actions, but also the circumstances of life that you can't control um, that are so painful and, and beat you down so much, uh, you know, that you they have to assign, uh, you know, some kind of higher power blame to it. Uh, and that becomes the devil that they fight all the time. And then uh, just a, a cool thing that I, you know, relate it back to Satanism was the possible uh, connection to the devil in the land. And what I mean, like, it's, of course, up for debate, but because the focus is, like, so heavy on, um, you know, a specific time period and specific geographics, it almost feels like there is an aspect of the land and culture that is directly connected to the devil itself, um, I don't think that everybody will interpret it like that. I just think that, you know, as a Satanist, I looked at it from several different angles and I'm like, wow, you know, maybe uh, this is so permeated in the culture and in the land they've lived on for so long that the devil, you know, they've they've taken the devil <laughs> past just some uh, concept. Uh, they've actually created a devil that's like attached to the land or maybe the the author is trying to say no no there there is a devil you know you can't see him no, but I've, he's there and he's in the people that are born on this land um i've got to ask mm -hmm. uh was this book or this movie or this experience with the author um did that help inspire you to take that little trip you told us about um i to be honest with you i don't it, it didn't i think i did see the movie before i went on that trip um, but I didn't read the book before I went on that trip. It this was, West Virginia thing, it keeps popping oh, up I know. around you. I, it's I'm a reoccurring I'm, theme. I'm becoming the Appalachia Satanist, despite not <laughs> being connected to Appalachia um, in roots or anything else. I, I, I am aware of what's happening here, Bill. Thank you for pointing it out. Yeah, I'm show. just I'm seeing a theme, you know, as it keeps coming <laughs> up. As soon as you be like, oh, I'm moving to West Virginia, here it, I go. It did just so happen that we had a trip planned to West Virginia. Uh, my friends came over. They said, let's watch this movie. We watched it. And then we we went to West Virginia, uh, I guess, a week or two later. And then I came back and I, I had gotten the book by then and I started reading it. Um, but yes, I totally see the connection. Uh, and then the relevance to Satanism. It's maybe not relevant to Satanism, but it's just to point out like the stupidity and craziness of faith healing and showmanship. There's ties to the gothic aspect of it and, and just the horror nature of the story. Um, it illustrates a lot how congregations get, you know, that they, they find God or they find whatever higher power they're looking for uh, extremely by, by doing extreme 
things. I mentioned spider charming a little bit earlier. I'm not, you know, exaggerating that it's, ooh, it, it'll freak you out if you're an arachnophobe. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to look that up. That's not a Google search for me. <laughs> Watch the That's entire movie. I actually got down to ask what it was. <laughs> um, you know, he thinks he's a spider charmer, among other things. It's, uh, you know, the lengths that these preachers will go to to keep their congregation's attention and uh, maybe even reach God themselves in their own heads. It's it's a little, you know, it, it's kind of crazy. It begs the question, when you don't have other sources of entertainment or other alternative sources of, like, leadership, education, industry in the places you live, are you kind of just doomed to find yourself in one of these small congregations, no matter what it is, you know, no matter what denomination it is, you know, even if it was like a little Satanist congregation in the middle of the woods, uh, you know, are we all going to, if the TVs and, and electric stop, like, stops tomorrow, are we all going to find ourselves in a satanic church house, spider charming and, and doing a bunch of crazy shit <laughs> <laughs> just to find, um, you know, just to discover our highest connection with whatever higher power that we've come to believe in out of uh, complete boredom. People are nuts. Yeah. Start believing in crazy, like objectively crazy things and start doing objectively crazy shit. And uh, this book, you know, it it has some scenes um, that Satanists, I think, would be interested in in terms of, you know, how often we we go out of our way to point out just the the absurdities of of, uh, certain religious practices and beliefs. Uh, so that is um, most of what I got out of the relevance to Satanism. I had I, I was very shocked by this movie. I hate Netflix, um, but then occasionally a movie like this will pop up, and I'll be like, "Damn it!" Like, you know, like, "Damn it!" I can't get rid of my Netflix account yet because you know sometimes I'll see things like this and be really impressed. Definitely one of the best movies of 2020 for me. Um, I recommend that everybody watch it if you have the stomach for it. Um, I recommend that everybody read it if you're into really good kind of horrific uh, gothic period pieces. Um, And, you know, if you are like me, (laughs) the fast becoming Appalachian Satanist and uh, (laughs) have any affinity for that particular area of uh, the United States, definitely check it out. I think I think you'll be impressed. I think it'll, you know, sit with you at the very least. That was The Devil All the Time by Donald Ray Pollock. Thank you, Veronica. Now, I'm, I'm, you sold me. I'm probably going to start with the book and then and then dive in to, to the movie. All right. Thank you, Veronica. That was awesome. And I guess it's time to unpause our little journey here with uh, with Stu. What do you think? I agree. All right. So I'll uh, I'll kick it off because I've been this is a question um, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of dying to ask based on research. So the criminal defense attorney, is that was that? the law that you typically practiced um, since you started, or did you kind of evolve into that? Uh, that's my field. So I, I've always been a criminal defense attorney for my entire career, either public or private practice. I've done both. I've done all levels. I've done appeal levels, uh, appellate level. So I'm still a criminal defense attorney. That's probably my, my entire career will be the satanic temple stuff. Not a necessity. I mean, I always, every, every, I think a lot of law kids, you know, dream of doing like a big first amendment case that's that no one's done before, but um, it's not often that comes up. Uh, nor did I really jump on the chance? I kind of waited for a long time because, it, you know, I figured maybe someone would step up to do this, but no one would. So I, I took my first case before the statute ran and then I continued to do this for until now. I mean, I've, I've got two of the cases still um, with my co-counsel, but 
this was something I was uh, attempting to start, uh, not finish. So I don't, it's not going to be long-term that I'm the attorney for the satanic bowl. This was just something that had to be done. So I did it. And it's, it sounds like just on what little I know that there are, there are a lot of, you know, not only are there a lot of moving parts, but there are a lot of, you know, good minds involved in the work that's going on right now. So hopefully that can kind of create that situation where you can, you know, that, that, you know, you know, the prophecy of starting it and kind of letting go a little bit and kind of help come to fruition. Well, we did. I, I passed the torch to my co-counsel. So years ago, I, I made friends with a guy who I had very little time to vet, uh, Matthew Keziah. He'd be taking over the remaining of the cases for the foreseeable future. So it worked out great, actually. You know, I do constitutional law. It's just different amendments. That's how I describe it. So, you know, Fourth Amendment, First Amendment are two different things. But I'm I'm glad that I that we got this started. I'm glad I did the Baphomet lawsuit. I did the um, Stale lawsuit. And then I, I'm still doing a lot of legal advising um, for Lucian and uh, for the temple in general. So I'm always involved somehow in the lawsuits, but I'm not I'm not putting my name on them at this point on any of the news. All right. And one, another thing that came up in uh, my research was the um, the adopt a highway program. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and what you know, how that kind of came about? It did get a good amount of uh, media attention. Um, just from what I've seen in the research. And is there anything, any other charitable initiatives that you might be involved with currently that you might want to shed some light on? So, yeah, the, the adopt a highway um, situation, we were, I think, the second or third chapter to do that. Actually, it was the first time I saw the words Friends of the Satanic Temple. It was before it was a chapter in Colorado. So diversity did it first uh, successfully. I think we were the second ones to do it successfully. Um, and, you know, I was at this point, I had already been litigating. So I was going to sue the Department of Transportation if they would deny us. But they were fine. They were like, yeah, put it on up. So we got signed right away. Um, still going to this day. So we've had it going for several years. Now. Um, and I think my chapter, the Arizona chapter, which I don't have much involvement anymore, but I think they're doing um, park cleanups now in Tucson as well. So we, we did a really big menstruate and was Satan campaign. And then we won that we called Lord of the Ties which was getting suits and dress clothes for people that needed to go to job interviews or uh, court appearances, you know, people that might not have those clothes or afford those clothes. Otherwise, that's fucking awesome. For me personally, I'm of the opinion strongly that our charity shouldn't be just random, you know, food drives in Kansas. I think we, as Satanists, our duty is to do charities for the more overlooked in society or the more demonized in society or, or neglected. And to me, people that, that are felons or people on probation or might have a drug addiction and they're trying to get back on their feet is exactly the kind of people we should be helping with our charity drives. That is. I completely agree with you. And like you said, with the felons and the, um, and the addicts, they, they definitely need help to get off their feet. Um, I got plenty of friends in both positions and um, I try and help out as much as I can, but there's always so much that I can do personally. So it'd be, it would be great to see more of that happen. Yeah. Especially, you know, in the United States with our incarceration rate, we all have, um, every single person has been touched by the criminal justice system, whether it was themselves or a loved one had a drug addiction or went to prison. And, you know, this isn't that, underground. I mean, we, it seems like it is socially, but this is, everybody knows somebody that needs this kind of help. Um, and in my opinion, again, this is, I'm not speaking on behalf of TST when it comes to this, this is my opinion is that that's what our charity drives should be focused on. Cause you know, I, I think that's why I like menstruating with Saint too, because you're looking for charity that was, um, trans and LGBT community friendly specifically for that kind of thing. Um, of course, women in general are, 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 
overlooked. They're not the ones that people are generally doing charity drives for. Um, there's plenty of other ones. There's a million charities for, for lots of causes, which is great. But I think ours should should point towards, you know, the Satanized people of, of the country. Yeah, that, that's great. The, the off the highway program is uh, now how often is that? It's like a monthly thing. And do you guys I mean, I've heard stories of people using like pitchforks and shit when they're. Uh, oh, yeah, that's our chapter. Um, so I had very little to do with actually the the putting this together. Actually, one of our chapter members uh, in America um, at the time, she she really put this together. But it's been carried on uh, continuously by you know, newer members, a lot of people that, that started it are now gone, but it's still going and people are, are picking up uh, where it left off, which I'm, that's, what's very exciting to me. I think as a chapter head, uh, that's a point of pride for me that, you know, I, I am long gone, Michelle's long gone from the chapter leadership and all that. And even though we have nothing to do with it anymore, people really did step up to, to complete that. And I think that's what's going to need to have this organization gets, you know, the originals do a bunch of stuff and then it goes by the wayside. Um, so yeah, they're still picking it up. I think it's every, it's bi-monthly every other month. Maybe it's, it's not super frequent, but it's enough where, you know, it's, it's a number of times a year and a group goes out there and one of our members, uh, made those pitchforks to, to pick stuff up. Hell yeah. Middle worker. So now moving forward, one of the things that we like to do here at Satanic Study Hall is, you know, we say like every episode is just gain some perspective around Satanism. We have listeners that have been around and been members of the temple since, you know, 2013 that have been, you know, crazy active um, within the community. We have members that and listeners that are, you know, just, you know, dipping their toes and considering membership um, and trying to differentiate TST from Church of Satan, all of that. There's just all over the spectrum. So one of the things we like to do here is just hone some perspective from people who, you know, are, you know, are well versed within the community. And, you know, you know, I know you're very well read. You know, I know reading's important to you as it is to many of us. Um, so, you know, we, you definitely offer um, a very powerful um, and, you know, awesome perspective when it comes to this whole satanic temple movement and Satanism in general. So I'm kind of going to kind of give the, the, the whole flow of questions around Satanism over to Dennis and let him ask you a couple things around like misconceptions. People have um, things around what you think the future are in Satanism and stuff like that. So uh, what do you think, Dennis? Are you on board with the um, with that little part of our notes? Sure. Yeah, I can definitely jump into that. Um, you know, you were talking about misconce- misconceptions. Um, yeah. What what are the biggest misconceptions um, that people have about Satanism? Well, I'll say the biggest mis- uh, misconception that I like to address about TST uh, is that we are either trolls or activists. Um, I think activism is a, is a symptom of it. I don't think it's a it's the main thing. And, and what's been bothering me is ever since, especially the documentary came out, people get involved that out that don't have any interest in actual Satanism. Um, they just want to go either troll the religious right or wear a funny hat and say, aha, look at you. And now we're challenging some thing in my school or whatever. And I'm like, man, this is, this is serious shit. Like you, this isn't something you fuck around with like that. And, um, that really bothers me. So in the early days, my conception about Satanism talk would be about, Oh, you know, we're not devil worshipers and we don't sacrifice babies. This, But now I've swung completely the other way where I'm like, if you just want the activism, go do activism. But 
you know, this is, this is our actual religion. Like we care deeply about this. These are our deeply beliefs. This is, we practice this religion. So if you just want to hold a sign with a pentagram for the, for the picture, please don't just don't do that. Shit. Um, so, you know, I, I always tell people, please do some research on which group you want to join the church of Satan. That's fine. You want to join the satanic temple. That's great. But, um, you know, I also want, don't want people having to be spoon fed, you know, the, let me Google that for you type stuff is, has always bothered me handholding. I was like, I don't, I don't want to do satanic handholding. You know, I'm happy to talk about all day, one-on-one stuff, all of it, as long as people are interested and not just get on this active activism bandwagon, which is kind of what it became to me. Of course, this is my experience where I was getting, you know, inundated with messages and things. There were a lot of that. So you know, it's like, like I was saying, what it's worth fighting for is the activism is the fighting for it. It doesn't start with the activism. That's fine. These are my deeply held beliefs. Those are worth fighting for. So it's like putting the cart before the horse. If you get into it first from the activism, that that's my, that's kind of how I've been thinking about it lately. When, when that's like, what's a misconception about TSD. Okay. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, I love how you pointed out, like, you know, if you're only for the activism, just go do that. Like, this is a deeply held belief system for us. Now with, you know, the TST starting, I mean, we're still, you know, we're still very fresh. With them being new and growing as as rapidly as they have, where do you think the future of Satanism is headed? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, that's, we're kind of building it um, in a way and, and not, not to sound like we're the harbingers of what is, but we have done a lot of the public sphere stuff. I think that's uh, unequivocal. I think that's a, a true statement. And in, fact, in, in federal court, Scottsdale, I think it was the first time uh, a federal court record said that Satanism is a real religion um, by every metric of the standard, regardless of its theistic nature. And to me, that part of the ruling was one of their defenses. And I think being put on paper, the Satanic Temple specifically is a, re- is a real religion. You know, that's, we all get that, you know, pushback a lot. I think that was a big deal. So I think we're in the infancy. You know, you, you, you wonder about things like secession, what happens when Lucian Greaves isn't around? What happens when, you know, you lose some of the institutional memory when a lot of us are either over the hill or retired from this or, or as an organization or what have you. So I think we're so new and we're, we're spreading so many new things, including the ordination program. Well, that was another thing I was involved in, by the way. I, I give one of the lectures for ordination on witch hunts. But, you know, we're just now getting the ordination. We're just now treading, you know, making some some movements in the federal court system. And eventually it'll be the state court system. And eventually when we say our name, people are going to say, we know who they are and we know what they do. And we know, you know, and, and I think that is when we will have made it, I think. And by numbers of how many people are interested in members compared to when I started, staggering. It went from several hundred to several thousand to tens of thousands, you know, and in several years, as far as church was saying, I think it'll always be around. I think it'll always be more underground, which is just fine. I'm not, uh, I think it's straight from what Levo wanted, but um, how is that not happen? Uh, so again, it's, I think it's a mysterious future for us. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Um, with the, 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 the thought of, of where the, the temple is headed in the future, what do you think is like, the biggest thing that's that's holding Satanism back from reaching that. I think what's holding us back is ourselves. Um, I, I think Satanists hold Satanism back. 
And I think that because I think there's a lot of, in the, I don't know if you guys have read the invention of Satanism book, which is one of the books that I think is, is a really good first read. If you're getting just involved, the invention of Satanism book talks about reactive Satanists, uh, which is kind of people that do it, you know, kind of sometimes the activists are like this too, the people that do it to piss someone off. You know, blasphemy is, is just to piss someone else off, but that's, that's kind of shallow. And I think that sets us back. I think, I think our fucking spirit Halloween store robes set us back. I think we could be taken seriously around in a fucking $10 Halloween robe holding a plastic skull. I don't think that does anything for Satanism. I think that makes us look like fucking clowns. The, the whole thing being flooded with people that want to get on board with the activism, I think that slows us down because I think it makes it so we don't seem as legitimate because when those people are out in the public talking about why they're in it, people are, Oh, they're, Oh, it's, it's one of them. They're not real Satanists. And I, I hate that stuff. The religious right is going to do what they do. Um, we're going to court cases. It's going to be an upheld battle, but that's going to happen regardless. That's not holding us back. That's just part of the process. In my opinion, that's just how it's going to go. You have to bash your head against the wall over and over again before you knock it over. And that's the point that we're at. That's not holding us back. That's the narrative. That's how this goes. You know, eventually, if we put up the bathroom monument, someone's going to blow it up. We know that's going to probably happen. These people are violent. You know, I think internally we get we kind of get held back because we're still trying to figure out our footing, figure out where we are, which is normal. Again, that's also part of the process. As a Satanist personally, like what is um, one moment that you were the most proud to be a Satanist? Um, Anything particularly stand out? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, there was a lot going on in, I'd say, 2016. Um, I, I, there was one time I was on national news a bunch, which more intimidating than like a pride moment. When we finished the trial in Scottsdale, that was a pride moment because it was, it was grueling and it took four years to get there. Um, I was proud to do the ordination. Um, but some of my favorite parts were some of the social gatherings we did a while back. We did this presentation, Neil Sanctum, which was like nothing sacred. It was like this basically reverse passion play we put together. Um, we did uh, As Witches Burn, which was one of my favorite events ever, where we had the, the bar and install stripper poles, and then they, the witches were putting <laughs> the stake, and then they pole danced on the stakes and went all night where people were rotating up and Shiva honey DJed the whole thing or DJed part of it. We had bands and stuff. It was great. It was fantastic. That was, that was one of my favorite things. So I think there's different, like, again, there's different components. There's like the actus component. I did a lawsuit. There's the, the community component. We, we threw some pretty bomb, you know, events it's kind of a different part point of pride with all of those different things. Um, I did enjoy, you know, when I was a national council, it was like, you know, I helped write a lot of the policies um, whether they lasted or not doesn't matter to me because if it evolved and they figured out a different way, good, you know, but we just had to start forming this thing um, early on. So yeah, it's just different. I guess I'm, I've got different points of pride for different of these things and it's all kind of a different feeling. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. It's, it's almost like a a different, different level of pillars and everything. Um, You know, every, every, you know, there's a community sense of pride. There's that personal fucking, yeah, "Yeah, fuck. Yeah. I had a great fucking time tonight. Like this was awesome. Everyone came together and killed it type of moment. And I I can definitely, um, definitely get down with that. Um, so as far as, uh, I think there's only like one more and I'm going to skip a couple here in uh, in the interest of time. But, um, one thing we like to ask too, from the perspective thing is, you know, you've talked about a lot, you've talked about, you know, almost some recommendations in regards to, you know, 
take it seriously. Um, if you want to flatter the activism, please do. Um, but in regards to people that really are trying to take this seriously and immerse themselves and the people that are feeling like really strongly, like this might be something for them. Uh, what do you, or what advice do you have, you know, personally for anybody that is, you know, adopting this lifestyle or, you know, is really considering, you know, becoming a Satanist? Uh, I'd say read everything you can and consider the consequences. If you're going to lose your kids in a custody battle, maybe think twice. If you're going to lose your job, if you're going to, mom's going to disown you, you know, these, is it really worth it to, to only identify this way? You know, um, I don't use a pseudonym. I don't, you know, I've, to me, that's uh, something I'm interested in doing, but I also have that luxury. I have an understanding family. I was my own boss, you know, kids in danger. I don't live in the deep South. So, you know, that's kind of my, my Satan privilege right there. Right. But, you know, sometimes I see people get involved and then I'm horrified what ends up happening to them. They get from their community somehow, or, you know, they, they face some serious consequences consider that please. But also, you know, don't expect handholding read as much as you can, you know, and there's plenty of resources now, much more now than in the beginning of, of uh, material. Nothing's really canonized with the satanic temple, but there's a lot of different um, websites with recommended reading from Lucian Greaves to the, even the individual chapters, or you can talk to people established in the community that can have recommendations. Um, but yeah, it's, it's there's some stuff that you might read that'll really put you off this and then don't try to force yourself into that, you know, that square egg into the round hole or whatever. Like it's coming home religion. When you, when you join it, you should feel this is the world you should have been the whole time you just hadn't found it yet. If you don't have that feeling, that's when religion is uh, questionable to me. So um, if it doesn't feel right, own that. And if it does own that also, but you know, that's part of the beauty of this is you come at your own pace where you're, fresh from the womb or you're an old man you discovered it. That's fine. There's, I, I don't like the whole seniority thing, you know, Oh, I've been doing this. Like, Who cares? <laughs> Bill, am I the square peg in the round hole? Yes. <laughs> I've been the square peg in the round hole my entire life. No, and I, it, There's also the Satan adjacents, which I'm a big, you know, we kind of coined that phrase, I think from the Arizona chapter. And I think I really like Satan adjacents that say, you know, everything you're doing. I love the imagery. I love and like the books, but eh, it's not for me. Good. I'm glad you recognize that you like it and you're a supporter, but you're also, you know, you don't want to identify that way. That's totally respectable. There's no, you're not like shallow water for that. You actually have a little bit of introspection. <laughs> oh, great. Thank you. Cool. That was nuanced and very reasonable. Do you feel a little rounder now, Veronica? No. <laughs> Man, I think that's important too. And one of the things, um, one of the things that I, some things that I personally saw happen when you know this all started happening is um, one thing that I did see happen to some friends is almost trying to you know completely immerse themselves in the community aspect of it without even fully understanding what it is themselves or falling in love with the theatrics and almost forcing themselves to fall in line down the road because of how many connections they might have made or, you know, how cool it might seem or how good it might be feeling at that moment. But I think that's fantastic advice. And, you know, especially, you know, and I think one of the messages that I kind of want to, you know, kind of convey is just like you just said with that introspection piece, like the Satan adjacents, like that is okay. Like you can still interact and support a community and do 
do your own thing and march to the beat of your own drum as far as what's right for you and not feel like, oh, well, if I speak up or um, that's cool. But and, and that that's one thing I think it's um, really as far as sending that message is this is, you know, a deeply held belief system. But at the same time, it isn't for everybody, just like Christianity isn't for everybody. And, you know, acknowledging that and being real with yourself and being your true authentic self is the main goal, no matter what. Um, and if it happens to be within the belief system and the alignment of the seven tenets, fucking awesome. Uh, if not, you know, more, I have more respect for people who make that, you know, journey and that attempt to be their, you know, their true authentic self, regardless of, you know, their belief system overall, because that's just fucking a respectable characteristic. Yeah. And I think that's, you can say that for any, for any person, just being true to yourself. And of course that's a satanic idol. Did say something um, that that I think was important. You mentioned how some people go full speed ahead, where they kind of create their entire identity around this aesthetic. And I'm a huge fan of psychodrama myself, which was a, a Levine concept originally. But I like all that. But again, that's one component. This is a, this is a broad spectrum of, of things coming together. But I heard something interesting recently, where it said that if you only define your identity by one thing. It's like you're egg one basket. And I don't I actually don't think that's satanic. What's being satanic is to experience your full spectrum of interests and, and philosophies and whatever it is that works for you. Um, and that way, if something changes or one, one ball gets dropped, it doesn't crush your entire personality. It doesn't crush your entire identity. Like you can, you can adapt in changing with the sales, you know, changing the sales with the wind, exactly what we're supposed to do. So I do caution people also, like, don't get too involved too fast. This isn't going anywhere. This is a long race that's only with yourself. And when people are just like all Satan all the time, I think they kind of actually lose themselves into this imagery, into this persona almost that, you know, the spooky Satanist thing. But it's there's more there's more to life than, than Satanism. That's just supposed to be a, a small piece of your identity. And, and again, <laughs> prophetic shit right there, because in, and then there's, you know, personally, I, I just took, you know, something out of that. And I know so many, so many more people will, um, you know, whether it resonates personally with them or people that they may know. Um, so yeah, I think, especially the, the losing yourself component, yes. I, I think, you know, we all can speak to just friends or family members that have, you know, either through born again methods into anything abrahamic religions and just some of the the new um i'd say maybe even neo-pagan and spiritual um stuff that's coming out uh you know we've all kind of seen somebody transform uh you know sometimes for the better but sometimes not you get worried about them um so i think that's a really good point if you do and if you see people doing that in other religions you worry about them right mm-hmm. like, exactly oh God, so so why wouldn't it apply here exactly yeah it, it's the same thing you just don't see it mm-hmm. uh, because you're around people that are friendly to it but i think we're not doing them a service by not trying to pull the reins and, and there's no you know just, there's no sataner than, than now it's just like I, we've all seen it. obviously it's why we're all talking about it is we've all seen it so it's not that rare either <laughs> yeah. no it's yeah. not I fell into it. I mean, it got to a point where I was working on TST so often that it was like consuming my life. And I, I don't think that's a good thing. You know, I had to pull the reins on myself there, but it's what had to be done at the time. So, you know, I think there's an ebb and flow to all this also. And we're getting close to the end here, but we, I am going to pass things over to our valedictorian. 
Um, Veronica's got a list of a couple of cases that I'm sure you're rather familiar with. Um, and just to kind of coincide with some of the updates that have been going on, uh, a lot of people that are, you know, members of the temple have been getting the, you know, updates on some of the, the legal stuff that's going on in their emails. And I thought it'd be a good opportunity since we have you on just to kind of gather a little bit of your thoughts. And if there's any perspective, you can add to some of the things that are going on within our uh, little community here. So Veronica, it is all you. Um, so Baphomet and the Ten Commandments. The last thing that happened was there was a, a mutual discovery request, which is um, the information the other party might have uh, that's relevant to the issues in the case. Uh, and we've been waiting for ruling on that for months and months. So the federal courts kind of work at their own pace. They can pretty much do conduct things within the rules as, as they see fit. So once those uh, once the rulings come down, uh, we're going to file what I imagine are what's called cross summary judgment motions, which means we're all to say here's the facts. There's no dispute of these facts. They're in this container, and since we know what they are, there's a reason for a trial and we should win because of this reason. So we're both going to argue that. And then if it's granted one side or the other, I imagine we'll get appealed to the eighth circuit. Um, if they, there's still facts and dispute that can't be resolved, we got to go to trial. So that's where that one is. Um, all right. What about uh, TST versus Scottsdale? What's going on? So we went to trial a year ago. It was in January of 20. Um, we lost the trial and now on appeal to the ninth circuit uh, on issues of both fact and law, which make it um, even more complex because there's questions of whether the, the judge made a correct ruling on the law and on the facts of the case as to the desire of both. Um, fully briefed, uh, oral argument is on March 18th. Uh, again, whenever the ruling comes out, it could be the next day, it could be months, 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 and months down the road. We don't know. Um, so, of course, we're asking for them to reverse the ruling, which is another uphill battle. Um, so they, they are very difficult on appeal. Um, but that's where we're in that case. Now, the uh, Ohio fetal burial remains law and uh, Judy Doe. Can you talk a little bit about Judy Doe and um, what happened there? That The religious reproductive rights cases are a little different. Um, other cases, I call them Lucian's Law cases, uh, we're asking for a plural plurality to be respected. So we're not asking for anything to be removed. We're asking for things to be put in addition to what already exists. Since uh, religious liberty is its own set of laws, essentially, what happened was we had two separate lawsuits still on the federal level. We ended up losing on everything. And we had addition to the United, United States Supreme Court to hear them, which denied it, which I'm not surprised by. There is some case law on this stuff, but that one I think was one of the most, if not the most important case we had. That wasn't my case before my time, actually. Right before my time, as it turns out, I think I joined the Satanic Temple in the time the case was initiated. But um, once the Supreme Court denies it, it, it's a dead case, it's done, it's resolved. So we did that one, and that had to do with day waiting periods on abortions. Um, and we said we had a waiver thing don't adhere to reading Christian literature for three days before getting this medical practice it has nothing to do with that mm -hmm. medical procedure. And uh, they said, well, you, you didn't have to read it. You just had to receive it. So that was part of the, <laughs> that was why we lost. So you, as you can see, a very, very, very small detail that you might not even know when the case started could 
tanks playing. And it's unpredictable. Um, what about Bell Plain? I had a big personal interest in this. This is a um, satanic veterans memorial that is being put up in a in a park um, alongside a Christian um, veterans memorial. Am I am I right? Where are we with that? So what happened there was the judge dismissed all of our constitutional claims that um, that this was a, a equal protection and an establishment clause violation. Those were dismissed. The only claim remaining in federal court is what's called promissory estoppel. But that means is alliance to a detriment. So in this case, they said, hey, you can put this money up. We paid for and actually created it for that purpose because we were told we could put it up. When they rescinded that offer, we were uh, at out you know, money for the production costs and things like that. So they said that's still in play, not the constitutional claims. What we do from there um, is still up in the air. Uh, the con uh, on the basis of religion, though they they dismissed this even with the we have the right to put this up um, on the basis of religious representation. Yeah, and uh, we very much disagree with that ruling, and we haven't decided what we're going to do yet. <laughs> that's just crazy to me. Um, wow, I mean, that's... Yeah, there was a lot of evidence for it, so we were kind of surprised too. Yeah, um, yeah. In fact, there was more evidence than we thought when it first got initiated. There's some procedural things that were here that are boring that I, I, I won't get into, but um, yeah, that, that's still up in the air of what happens next. Okay. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll watch that one closely though. That one, I mean, just in terms of reading even the basics of it, I was like, well, this is pretty cut and dry, but you know, that's, that's insane. Okay. And then uh, the last is uh, TST versus Boston. New hot topic. So that's another invocation case, a different type. So Scottsdale's called an all-comer system. Um, there we're challenging their they're unwritten policies, essentially. Anyone can come give an invocation, but not you. Okay, so you can see that might be a problem with the establishment clause. Um, Boston's is that the uh, legislators themselves give the invocation based on their own religion, which presents a whole different set of potential legal issues. Um, representation and things like that. That case is all brand new. We just filed it. I'm not fully up to date on, on where that is, other than I think we're still in an answer, a response to it. Um, so that one's brand new. Uh, we'll have more information as it progresses. Now, I do have a small question. This may seem a little bit silly, but um, just Boston... Um, is that... Are, are you... Are you um, like, are we kind of going after Boston as a city for its individual city law, or is this like a Massachusetts statewide? So these are called 1983 claims, and that's based on a statute number Okay, where you do whatever, whatever government entity you're alleging violated your constitutional rights. So when it comes to invocation practice, those city codes, those are city to city. There's no state law in Right, right, right. But when it's when it's that your defendant is going to be the city, the actors, usually it's the city because they've got immunity. You know, you can't if if a, a policy can get sued for, every, for any decision they made, they'd be getting sued constantly. But there, there falls on the city if they were acting within the scope of their duty. This gets very complicated. What the scope of their duty was and who they're working for. And at the moment this happened, was it a, a legislative or administrative decision? So even though it seems like a lot of people are like, oh, you guys got this in the bag. Man, this shit is complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, with uh, with this Boston case going on, um, I know that Mayor uh, Martin Walsh didn't really come out and give a statement. Do you expect him to or you even tickle the you know the idea that he's going to? 
No, uh, no, I doubt it because they're, they're going to be advised not to by the, by the lawyers. You know, most people don't talk about their, their pending cases, but I think in with TST, it's like, we've been beating the same drum this entire time. Like we're not hiding at all. This is what we're doing. This is why, you know, there, there's nothing to hide. Um, this is our tactic. This is what we do. We, yeah. we enforce pluralism and secularism becomes a fantasy. Well, I mean, thank you. Thank you so much for um, all of that information. Literally satanic law school. Um, wow. <laughs> wow. I mean, I understand these cases a little bit even more thoroughly than I did just reading newsletters and, and articles about them. Um, so thank you. I will end this before we go into two a little bit longer general um, religious law questions, but I will end on, in your opinion, when uh, the temple loses a case, um, even ones that are as important as these, you know, separate from financial losses, um, do you think that we, in a way, gain something by losing? There's definitely a tension that's brought to um, the loss of a case and why. So, So do you think that what do you think that balance is between, you know, losing and winning something whenever the temple uh, loses uh, to the state? It's about the fight. It's not about the win. We're going to, like I said, we're going to keep beating our head again this fall until we get through. And okay. it might be five generations of attorneys down the road. I don't know. Maybe the whole thing collapses, but we have to fight. The fight. We put our money where our mouth is and that's what's important, you know? Um, so I think with every, Every fight, there's more exposed to what's going on out there. Yeah. There's more municipalities that are going to take this seriously. In fact, I saw a news article in another city in Arizona without us touching it. They were starting an invocation program, and a reporter asked them, what are you going to do when the safety temple comes? And we had nothing to do with it. We never talked to anybody or anything, and that has to do with our, our presence. And that's based on a case we've lost. Yeah. So eventually, when we start winning – they're going to think twice before they pass these, these essentially laws that favor one religion over another. They're going to consider us. They're going to be like, we cost Scottsdale $300,000 yeah. with that loss. Wow. Do they, does a small community want to pay that because violating some dude black t-shirts religiously, is that what they want to do? You know, and it's, it's the more we do this, the more we build this culture in this community and the more we fight, eventually they're going to put us in mind. And they're not going to pass these laws or they're going to let us participate. And then we don't have to sue anyone. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. <laughs> the fucking utopia. <laughs> All right. No, thank you so much. Uh, as it pertains to um, TST litigation cases, um, that was extremely enlightening. Um, I, I'd like to have you back on to talk more about them uh, in detail in the future. Um, so these are just after we kind of got our stuff together and figured out specifically like what we wanted to ask you about, just some general um, religious law and religious freedom questions that we generated. Um, is there any danger within the concept of religious freedom as a protected right? Um, does the legal fight for freedom of religious practices open the gates for abusive theocratic traditions to go unchecked? For example, um, would the recent temple's litigate, uh, legal abortion ritual open the door for rituals like Christian or Islamic executions, mutilations to be protected under constitutional freedom of religion? No. And, and this goes back to some rulings that, you know, religious liberty can't go to the point of violating the law. Mm -hmm. So you can't make a law to make their free exercise legal, but you can't violate criminal law to for your religious liberty. Now, this was heavily litigated with um, Native American practices with with peyote. Peyote is, is a 
Christians. Um, it was part of the religious liberal uh, religious liberty ritual, uh, as I'll call it. Um, and eventually they won that, but that was very narrow. And that was the only case that I can think of where that actually happened. Now you've got the Babalui case where there was Santria, they were practicing the sacrifice of animals. They made an ordinance at the city saying, you, you can't sacrifice animals. And they said, well, you can't make a law to prohibit their religious rights, right? There's two cases, there's very two narrow exceptions where this happened. But when you get more extreme, so to speak, you know, they're not going to, to allow that to happen. You can't violate criminal law, especially in an egregious way um, for your religious practice. So there is a balance to maintain, and that's what the OS here in law. There's a balance to maintain. That's how everything is. But no, I don't think it's in danger of some of these more extreme things. Um, I, that's, that's, that's not a thing. <laughs> okay. All right. No, great. Um, great. That's exactly, you know, um, that's exactly what we wanted to ask. And uh, that's the feedback that we wanted. Um, good. Um, so what do you think about the potential splintering of states on the grounds of religion? Do you see states like, as another example, like Mormon dominated Utah, uh, Utah becoming uh, more common and in therein becoming like more independent and theocratic in governance, um, ignoring legal separations of, of church and state in the future? No, I think I think the Mormons got in on that very early on and there was kind of this appeasement of them. Uh, because of their horrible Mormons um, back east, where they actually fled to Utah, they were kind of left alone. Because they faced horrible atrocities. I think St. Louis actually, um, and I think that proliferation of Mormonism was because they fled there um, for protection to get away from. Um, I think chances of anything like that happening again are slim to none. First of all, people are flocking away from church. They're not gaining members. The pews are being emptied. Uh, and I think that's, you know, whether we exist or not. Um, documentary on documentary series that I loved on Netflix called Wild Country um, with Osho. Did any of you watch that documentary? No, not yet. I've, it's, it's, it's def- I've definitely gone past it a few times before passing out. The, one that happened, the true story, is they founded their own town with their own police force and all this stuff run by the the church and they were actually sued successfully saying you can't establish a religion ironically it went far the other way <laughs> um so yeah i mean i i just don't think i think it's going the opposite way i don't think it's going to be more like this i think it's going to be less like this and i think the reason these theocrats get gets so much attention is sensationalism and the reason it's sensational is because it's wild you know trying to you know trying to charge women with murder or abortions like this is crazy shit that now was unconstitutional so wacky that we hear about it constantly so i think it seems a, a bigger problem than it is in a certain way but these little things you know these invocations and seeing this this kind of like slow creep um that we got to kind of step back um but as far as like these bigger issues of entire cities being democratic and stuff, I think no. No. Okay. All right, y'all. What a fucking show. This has been fucking awesome. Uh, I can't thank you all enough for, for being here, for, you know, members of the goat farm reaching out with some questions. Uh, Dennis, Veronica, Al, you know, Johnny, you know, put a lot of input into this. And of course, you know, used to for, you know, stopping by study hall and spending some time in class. This has been fucking great. 
Yeah, thank, thank you so much for having me. And uh, as these things move along, I'm happy to come back and talk about it. For Perfect. sure. Perfect. Thank you for coming. And now um, one thing we always do is uh, we just want to you know do some quick shout outs and thank you. So as always, we want to shout out to our entire online listening community um, and just listening community in general. We would not be here without the support of all the degenerates and heathens that um, check us out every time we launch a new episode. Uh, I want to thank uh, Sean from Happy Cat Designs, uh, who's really working hard on putting together our new line of merchandise, which we are calling Satanic Study Hall, the Varsity Collection. Ooh. Lots of cool shit, narrow down the focus, and I'm going to say it, fuck Teespring. Um, uh. you know, I've, I've done my research. They're, they're enablers to a bunch of bullshit, um, and we're going we're gonna to spend our money um locally and support small business and support small businesses everybody don't forget it that's just what sean's gonna do uh shout out to misty's coventry that's uh m-h-i-s-t-y-s coventry that's misty's coventry.com misty's coventry.com you can find a whole bunch of cool occult gifts and whatnot i recommend searching them on social media specifically facebook and maybe even ebay uh, misty's coventry just launched some really cool baphomet plushes um there's some baphomet kitten plushes uh really fucking good stuff uh, love sean sean's been a supporter of the podcast from the very beginning so hail satan sean we love everybody in misty's coventry of course dark art depository darkartdepository.com is where you can find all the latest designs and creations made by Rhett. um Rhett is featured on normie satanism too and gave our listeners some insight in regards to how he comes up with his designs what art means to him and what normie satanism means to him so if you haven't checked that out uh he's got a good little interview in normie satanism part two our friends over at love city satanists and friends of philadelphia always on to some good shit um so all right i will kind of open the floor dennis veronica any other last and final thoughts before the bell rings Thank you so much, Stu, for coming. Uh, just, again, thank you so much to everybody you shout out for their support. Um, thank you to everybody in this community who is being as innovative um, as they are, including our listeners, to, you know, keep up with their businesses, keep up with their art. Um, and thank you so much, Stu, and the Satanic Temple to keep up um, as hard as you are with these cases because, you know, as we just discussed, um, it's very important to keep fighting for the separation of church and state um, no matter where these issues crop up. Um, and I feel hell of a lot more educated in terms of the litigation aspect of the temple. Um, I've been on quite a journey as the boys well know, and I, I suck up every piece of information possible. Um, I court communities before joining them. This is, you know, I consider it, if not another step towards it, just another really um, important component of what I have to learn. So thank you so much too. Yeah, all yeah. right, Dennis, it's all you. What you got brother? I definitely wanted to first start off with Stu. Thank you very much, man, for coming on. I really enjoyed this episode. Just like Veronica said, I feel much more, uh, you know, informed and, and educated on everything that's going on, you know, the inner workings of the temple and all of that. Um, definitely want to give a shout out to, to our fans. Um, of course, a shout out to, to Joe and Manaz for, for our Dungeons and Dragons game. I'm waiting for more people to jump in. Uh, so that is still open for anybody who wants to play. All right, y'all. It has been an awesome and informative day in Satanic Study Hall, I guess, legal edition. Dun, dun. Um, again, you've all been fucking awesome. I love you. I love all you listeners out there. Thanks for keeping us going. And we will see y'all next time. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Class is dismissed.